come back then to the section that we read. And I want this evening particularly to look uh, with you at the letter to Laodicea. And we can read again at verse 14. The church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. For because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so on. This is only the second mention that we have in Scripture of the church in Laodicea. The only time that we see it mentioned before that is in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And if you look at chapter 4 and verses 13 onwards, uh, you will see that Paul, writing there, speaks about Epaphras greeting the church in Colossae. And he says in verse 13, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And then uh, a little bit later in verse 15, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So we have to assume that this letter is written to the church in Nympha's house in Laodicea. Although, again, the, a number of years have passed since Paul wrote to the Colossians and uh, between the time that John is writing here in the book of Revelation. I'll go into that in a wee bit more detail in a moment or two. And then he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now that letter has not survived. Uh, it is not in Scripture, it's not available, nobody knows what happened to that particular letter, but it was not preserved. But we are given there to understand that there was <coughs> a, a church in Laodicea and that it was not founded by Paul and it would seem from Scripture as far as we can see that he never actually visited the church in Laodicea. <coughs> Although, once again, we cannot be absolutely sure about that because not everything is, of course, recorded for us. Now, this section, then, uh, in which the words to the church in Laodicea is the final section, is known as, or are known, as the letters to the seven churches. And the seven churches, you can see, they are laid out from the beginning of chapter 2 onwards. There's the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, why those seven churches were chosen uh, for the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to be directed to them, uh, is something that has been debated among theologians for a long period of time. But we see very, very clearly 
that each one of these churches, that the message to them is different. All of them, except two, receive condemnation. All of them. It's the exceptions are Philadelphia and Smyrna. But every other one of the seven churches that are mentioned here is given pretty harsh words of criticism. And so people say then, why only seven churches? There were more than seven churches in this area. And I'm sure you are well aware of the fact that the area that is mentioned here is the area that has been so badly devastated by earthquakes in the last week or so. It's exactly the same area. Perhaps a little further to the east than where the epicentre of the earthquakes are at the moment, but the seven churches there were arranged more or less in a circle to go to travel around them, and I'll come into a wee bit more detail <coughs> on that later on. In fact, <coughs> 60 years before the writing of the book of Revelation, the city of Laodicea had been devastated by an earthquake. So this is uh, what's happening at the moment is not something that is new to that particular region. Uh, as I'm sure you've seen on the news, uh, there are various plates and fault lines there, and these things taking place take place, uh, I was going to say on a regular basis, but thankfully that's not the case, but every century or so there is a fairly major earthquake in that area. It's, a, it's an earthquake-prone area, like many other parts of the world. One of the blessings that you and I take for granted here is that we are not subject to earthquakes and such devastating earthquakes in the same way as they are. I don't know how many of you have ever been in an earthquake. Uh, I had the unfortunate experience of being in an earthquake once, a fairly major one, uh, but again because of various reasons uh, no major damage was done, although buildings collapsed and so on. Uh, <coughs> but that's another story. So, <coughs> who is writing here, <coughs> we need to look at in a little bit more detail. This, of course, is part or forms the first part of what is known as the Revelation uh, <coughs> or the Book of the Apocalypse, sometimes as it's referred to. And it was given to the Apostle John. And you see that from the very beginning, from the first chapter, it begins in the prologue, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And you see that John, a little bit later on, is to say that he, in verse 9 and chapter 1, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, the island of Patmos you can visit nowadays if you wish to. It's an island uh, in the, uh, <coughs> off the coast of between 
the, the coast of Greece and the coast of Turkey, one of the many islands that are there. And if you believe everything it's told you, you can actually visit where John lived and where he wrote this particular letter. <coughs> Although that is highly debatable. There are major arguments also about which John this is. Uh, I'm not going to go into those for the for, uh, sake of time, etc. And because I believe they are superfluous anyway. I have no doubt whatsoever that this is the Apostle John, one of the twelve disciples, uh, or to be more correct, the youngest of the twelve disciples, which is probably the reason why he is referred to as the beloved disciple. He had a special place with the Lord simply because of his youth. But again, we're entering into speculation again. When did this take place? <clears throat> well, it's usually dated to the 94, 95, 96 AD, round about there. And that this was during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. Now, Domitian you may not have heard of as a Roman Emperor, but he was one of the ones who persecuted Christians. Uh, that came to a particularly uh, <coughs> severe point under Nero later on, but Domitian's uh, tactic was to exile uh, the majority of Christians from wherever they were so that the church would be broken up. And from what we know from other sources, particularly the writings of Irenaeus uh, and some of the early church fathers like Origen and so on, it would seem that John was exiled from Ephesus to Patmos. He returns there later on. <coughs> uh, and in fact, uh, there is testimony written down of John being brought into the church in Ephesus as an old man when he could no longer walk and carried in by the young elders or deacons in the church. And John died in Ephesus, probably in his 90s. May even have been older than that, but uh, we don't know exactly. It's an interesting fact that John is the only one of the 12 disciples who was not martyred. He's the only one who dies a natural death. Uh, you can research that quite easily. There's plenty of information on how the other uh, 11 died. So John is told here <coughs> uh, that he has this vision to deliver. And you see in verse 10 of chapter 1, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Isn't that a wonderful verse? To be in the spirit on the Lord's day. That you and I today, the Lord's day, would also be in the Spirit. And he hears a loud voice saying to him, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And he turns to see, in verse 12, the voice, and he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
Now again, for the sake of time, I won't go into uh, all the detail of, what's, of the description here, but uh, <coughs> for those of you who are studious in terms of scripture, you will notice that the description is very similar to the vision that Daniel is given in the book of Daniel. The elements are virtually the same. Who is he? <coughs> well, verse 17 and 18 tell us who this is. He, read, he laid his white hand on me and saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and Hades. And he has commanded them to write the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And later on, we see in the last chapter of Revelation that the speaker identifies himself very, very clearly as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In chapter 22, John says, I am the one who heard and saw these things. <clears throat> and then the speaker says in verse 16 of chapter 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star, and so on. So the vision then, <coughs> or the instructions that are given to John are to write what he is told to write. And as you go into the book of Revelation, you will find that there are one or two things that John sees that he is not permitted to write. And therefore, it is only what he is allowed to write that we are given in this book. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the book that closes the canon of the New Testament. <coughs> and as it closes the New Testament, you will see in many, many ways the parallels that exist between it and the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, in a sense, closes the Old Testament. Uh, <clears throat> perhaps not in, uh, in strict chronological order, but in terms of prophecy, it closes up the New Testament, giving the vision of what is to come in the New Testament. And in the same way, the book of Revelation closes the New Testament and gives us the vision of what is to come in the final days of the second coming of Christ and of judgment, the day of judgment. And those things are laid out, as, laid out very clearly for us towards the end of the book. And so, first of all, <coughs> the Lord Jesus Christ dictates seven letters to seven churches. Now, the book of Revelation is full of symbolism. There were more than seven churches in this in Asia Minor, in this area of Turkey. And you see in the same way in the parts you see at the beginning of uh, chapter 1, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and so on, that the figure seven is used frequently throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, again, I don't have time to go into numerology, the numerology of the book of Revelation, but it's a fascinating study to do, 
because you will find that the book of Revelation is full of numbers that signify certain things. Seven is God's perfect number. Three is the number of the Trinity. Four is the number of the completeness. And so when you multiply four by three, you get 12. And of course, if you figure out again, you have 12 tribes, etc., 12 disciples. You will see in Revelation 21, 22, the foundations of the new city of Jerusalem have 12 stones, 12 gates, etc., etc. And all these things are symbolic. Now, the symbolism really begins from chapter 3 onwards, where you have, uh, oh, sorry, I should say from chapter 4 onwards, where you see that it starts with, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And you think, you wonder, well, how, how on earth could there be a door in heaven? But such is the symbolism being used so that we can understand and relate to what is being said. And this is exactly what we see being said to the church in Laodicea. You will see that the church in Laodicea has very specific things said to it. To the angel of the church in Laodicea. And remember that the angel here, as he'd said himself, that the, uh, the seven lampstands are the seven churches, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The angels normally are taken to refer to the ministers or those in charge of the church at the time. That they're the ones who are responsible for what goes on and the leadership of the church. And there is particular criticism laid on the church at Laodicea. But to understand that criticism, we need to know a little bit more about the city of Laodicea and some of the imagery that is used in this particular chapter. Laodicea was a very rich city. It stood on the banks of the river Lytus, and it was the centre of three trade routes that came from different directions. And it was famous for three things. It was famous for producing black wool. A particular type of sheep that were round about there produced a wool which was very fine and black in colour. It was also famous as a medicinal centre. And it produced the third thing from which it was famous, which was a kind of eye salve or anointment that was used to cure eye infections. And as a result of the wool and the medicine and the eye salve, Laodicea was an extremely wealthy city. So wealthy, in fact, that uh, when it had been destroyed by an earthquake 60 years previously, it had turned down the offer of help from Rome, from the central government in Rome, of funds to rebuild it, saying that they didn't need it. They had enough money to rebuild, they were wealthy enough, and the city was rebuilt. And it is through this wealth that you begin to see the problem that now exists in the church of Laodicea. Verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And that was very much 
the situation of this church. This was a church that outwardly was doing well. And remember that the letters are written to the churches. They are not written to unbelievers. But they are written to actual churches. And the Lord Jesus Christ is diagnosing the faults that exist and what needs to be put right within this church. Now Laodicea <coughs> lay between the city of Hierapolis and Colossae, the two cities that are mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Hierapolis was a city that was famous for having hot springs, thermal water. And you remember, of course, that thermal water is an indication of volcanic activity. And again, volcanic activity leads very often to the movement of the tectonic plates, etc., in earthquake zones, exactly what happened there last week. What's the point? <clears throat> well, Colossae on the other side was famous for having cold water, fresh mountain water that came from springs from the water. And Laodicea's water came from an aqueduct that was actually a mixture of the two, of warm water from Hierapolis and cold water from Colossae. So, but by the time it reached Laodicea, it had turned lukewarm. Now I'm quite sure <clears throat> you and I are familiar with many things, but one of the things we dislike more than anything else is lukewarm tea or coffee. It's kind of lost its taste when it's lukewarm. It's neither cold. Cold coffee sometimes can be quite pleasant, but lukewarm coffee, etc. And this is the image that is being used here. Wood, I know your words, you are neither cold nor hot. This church has got to the stage where it is a lukewarm church. It's totally passive. It's not doing anything. It appears to be fine. On the outside, it's a church that is prospering well, but it's a church that is going through the motion. You are neither cold nor hot. And that is, of course, a very deep criticism that is made of any church. That you are neither cold nor hot. <coughs> if you and I were to examine the state of our own churches, church in Shabbos, the church in Carlos, and this description was applied to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure it would frighten us that we are neither cold nor hot. We're passive, lukewarm, sitting around doing nothing. And no wonder the imagery then comes, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Notice that that's a future tense. I will speak. It's not happening yet. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is warning his church in Laodicea in this revelation that he gives to John 
that there is still time to put things right. While they look one, verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And you see there how the imagery of the things that Laodicea was famous for is brought in. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Now every time you see the symbolism of gold in scripture, it is the symbolism of the purity, the holiness and the riches of Christ. I mentioned this morning the gold of the mercy seat without going into detail. But if you look at the construction of the tabernacle and everything that is surrounded by it, you find that it goes from gold in the most holy place, from the, from the most important materials in the centre of worship to the baser materials on the outside. And throughout the Old Testament, gold is used as a symbolism of the purity of holiness and God's grace. Buy from me not just any gold, but gold refined by fire. And I'm sure you're well aware that in order to purify gold, it has to go through the purpose of being purified by fire. Being heated to have the impurities removed. So that you may be rich. It is holiness that makes us spiritually rich. We spoke about that a bit this morning. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. What a contrast to the black wool garments that Laodicea was so famous for. White garments. You remember that white was the colour that was used for the priesthood in the Old Testament. The linen garments were white. You find the same symbolism coming up again throughout the book of Revelation later on. But the white linen garments are the garments of holiness that are given to the saints in glory. That's what we see as, we, as John is given further revelation later on. And here is the contrast once again. White garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now they were not literally naked. This is spiritual nakedness. This is the nakedness of Adam and Eve in the garden before they fell. And when they fell, it was then that they realized how naked they were before the eyes of God. We were meditating on that a little bit this morning. And how that God was gracious to them in thrusting them out of the garden but providing an animal skin to cover their nakedness. And one thing I didn't mention this morning was that they couldn't return to the garden. The sword of God's justice was placed at the gate of Eden, preventing any entry. And therefore it was through that that the promise was given in Genesis 3.16 
that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. What's very often referred to by theologians as the Proto-Evangelical. That is the first gospel mention that is made in Scripture. Genesis 3, chapter 3. The shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And you can see how the elements of the things that Laodicea was famous for are drawn together in the imagery that is used to condemn the church. Eyes are ointment to put on your eyes, to anoint your eyes so that you can see. Maybe that's what you and I need as well, that we need eyes out, given to us from on high, from the Lord Jesus Christ, to see and to discern what is going on in our churches, what needs to be corrected. And then you see the warning that is given, and it's a warning to the church, it's to us, it's not to those who have nothing to do with church. The warning is to the church. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That's why he reproves and disciplines, because he loves. Isn't that why any parent reproves and disciplines their children? Because they love them. If they didn't care, they wouldn't bother. They'd let them do whatever they want to do and grow up and go their own way. And all this nonsense that is spoken about in terms of parental discipline nowadays, it's no wonder that we have lost our way as a country in moral terms. That parental discipline is no longer applied in the way that it used to be and the way that it should be. Those whom I love, I reprove. I tell you what's wrong and I discipline. That's one of the functions of the elders of the church, both teaching elders and ruling elders, to tell you in love what is wrong, to correct it. And it's not an easy thing to do by any means. So be gracious with your elders and your ministers when they correct and discipline. Be zealous. And repent. This is what Laodicea is told. Be zealous. What did zealous mean? The word seal originally comes its root in Greek is to come from fire. Be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ again. Be on fire to do the work of the church. Be zealous and repent. And it would seem that there were things that Laodicea had to repent from. And so it is with you and I as well. There are things that we have to repent from. Some of them we may not even be aware of. Psalm 19 tells us that. David tells us that there. My secret faults when he refers to that. That there are things sometimes that you and I are not aware of that we're doing wrong. But the Lord will show us bit by bit. 
the Lord will correct us. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And we're told in another place, if I remember correctly in the book of Hebrews, that we do not despise the chastening of the Lord. It's not easy to accept correction, to accept discipline from others. But nevertheless, there are times when it's necessary. And then we come to this famous verse, used so often out of context as an evangelical verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. But the verse is not spoken to those who are not in the church. The verse here is spoken to the church. The church of Laodicea. And if you examine the other six letters, you will find warnings given in the same way to so many of them. There are things that need to be corrected in our worship, in our churches. But nevertheless, if we listen to the voice of the one who is speaking to us, his promise is that she will come in and eat with him and he That in the sacrament once again of the supper, eating with us, and he being with us in the supper, we will be refreshed again in the things of God to worship as we should. The one who conquers. What does he mean by conquering? Well, you and I cannot conquer our sins 100%. There are certain sins that we may be well aware of and those sins we can put them to one side and say I'm not doing that again I repent from that and our behaviour will change and for those of you who have been Christians for years all you have to do is look back at where you were when you were converted and at what you are now you're not perfect. You never will be in this life. You never will be perfect. You will still continue to sin in thought, word and deed each and every day. But very often now your sins are more sins of omission than sins of commission. The sins of things that you forget to do that you should have been doing. Rather than committing sin. That's a very fine distinction. I mean, time has gone past to go into that in detail. You can work out yourself later. Go back to Psalm 19 and you'll see there how it's laid out. Things, sins of omission as against sins of commission. That is what conquering means. It means I day by day the process of sanctification. That is a process that began with your regeneration on the day that you were converted. It wasn't there in your conversion, but it begins almost instantly after that. 
And that process of sanctification continues until the day that you die and you enter glory. You will not be fully sanctified until you enter into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, as we were saying this morning, as we fell in our federal head in Adam, so we are prone to sin right up until the last second of our life. And in many ways that's a frightening thought for us. But you notice what the Lord says, the one who conquered, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now again, you have to be very careful of taking what the book of Revelation says literally. It's full of symbolism. And the, th- <coughs> the imagery of the throne here is of the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter tells us that all those who believe will reign as kings and priests with him in eternity. What exactly that means, we don't know. We have to wait to get there to see. And later on in the book of Revelation, that picture is opened up to us more and more. Even in, even in chapter 4, if you look just to the next chapter, you will see that around the throne, around the throne of God, 24 thrones and seated on the thrones 24 elders. Was it only those 24 who were worthy of sitting on thrones? Why 24? Well again the symbolism of numerology you see 24 of course is 2 times 12. There were 12 disciples. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And that symbolism is being used throughout the letter of Revelation, to indicate to us things that otherwise we would be unable to understand. Even so, the book of Revelation is not an easy book to understand. There are parts of it that are very, very difficult, if not impossible for us, to understand fully. But we are given these pictures. Why? Because you're told in verse 22, the final verse of the letter, he who has an ear, and every one of us have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. You and I this evening must hear in the same way what the Spirit is saying to the church. The church is not a building. The church, you and I, of the church. The church of the people. Living stones that make up the church of God here on earth. The church militant before it becomes the church triumphant in heaven. And you and I are warned to listen carefully. You can hear without listening. I'm sure you can all hear me just now. But whether you're actually listening to me, that's another question altogether. 
Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the last of the seven letters. It's the last one. And you notice that the warnings in them are not directed to those who are not believers, but directed to the churches, to the believers. And the rest of the book of Revelation deals with the apocalyptic visions that John is given of what is to come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns for the second time. Of the day of judgment and of what will happen finally in glory, particularly in chapters 21 and chapters 22. It's a fascinating book to study and if you have time I would thoroughly recommend that you look at it in detail. It's not an easy book by any means, but you will find plenty of information and sermons on it available on the internet. That's one of the wonders of the internet nowadays, the amount of material that is available for us. Beforehand, you used to have to have mighty tomes of commentaries by various people in your library at home. Nowadays, it's all there with the touch of a button. But you have to be careful as well. There are some very weird interpretations and some that are completely wrong of the book of Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you allow us to meditate on these things, that you open our minds to understand them little by little, but that you also warn us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We thank you for your word this evening, for being able to meditate on it, and we pray that you would bless us to each and every one of us as we return to our homes, that uh, we would be able to think on these things, and to spend more and more time <coughs> listening to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Be with us now as we conclude our worship. Take us to our homes in safety and pardon sin through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.